0: you for your warm welcome and for letting me come and share about a story that I just love because it's so familiar to us this last supper. We at Missio Day, we receive the elements every week. We talk about this moment weekly and so it can become a little bit, I don't know, is numb the right word? We become numb to it. I think that would be the way that I would say it. But when I have the opportunity to sit in this passage, God every time, never fails, to bring new richness and depths to it. And so I'm really excited to be sharing from this story with you. But I never want to assume that people know how all of this Bible stuff works. So let me just give you a little brief introduction. This moment in the life of Jesus and his followers, it is recorded in each of the four gospel accounts. The writers of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all mention this moment. But the thing that happens with the Gospels, we have to remember, is that they are not all exactly the same. Because this isn't like a news reporter recording exact and precise events even though we could have a side commentary about how well news reporters really do that. We won't go there, but this is not like that. This is somebody more like four individuals who have gathered stories as time goes on and they realize we've been hearing these accounts about the life and ministry of Jesus and his teachings, but time is going on. We need to record these for the next generation who isn't hearing things firsthand. And just like it would be if we all went to a wedding feast, we would come away and emphasize different points, different order of things wouldn't be the biggest, the exact language. There's going to be nuance as what they're hearing is really about getting to the heart of what's happening. And so with all four of these gospels accounting this important meal, that's our first indication. Last supper, super duper big deal because all four of them are like, we're giving this some real estate in our accounts but all of them do it a little bit differently. We are rooted in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm going to springboard off of Luke, but I'm gonna let you know that all of the accounts have kind of the same broad stroke uh, order of things. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. They share a big meal. Bread and cup are shared by Jesus to the disciples. And we learn that Peter will deny even knowing Jesus. That broad stroke order, we're going to take this a little bit like a sandwich, okay? If you like if you're an imagery person, we've got betrayal, meal, denial. All the gospels have that as our sandwich. Now John, ever the poet, doesn't focus on the bread and the cup. He actually talks about this moment. We won't read it, I won't get far into it, but it's important. Same meal, where Jesus stops and washes the feet, the dirty, grimy, sandal-ridden feet, of all of the disciples at this table. So John's focusing on this act. And he says, as I have come to serve, you serve one another. Luke talks about the service this way because they argue about who's gonna be greatest. And Luke says, it's not about that. The greatest among you is the one who will serve. The leader among you will be the servant like I am doing. That's a paraphrase. So all of them are, there is this arc of service as well, this humbling service that Jesus is showing at the same time that he's showing about prayer breaking bread and spilling the cup. But our sandwich for this morning, our broad stroke sandwich, Judas will betray, bread and cup will be shared, and Peter will deny. This is our broad stroke moment that we see. Let's start by putting our sandwich in a little bit of context here. The location and the timing. The location is Jerusalem. At this point in the nation's history, the holiest of holies, the presence of God, the temple of God is located in Jerusalem. This is their holy city, the city of David, the promised land. It's a big deal location in their cultural mindset. And the timing is Passover. This is not accidental. We hear that in all the gospel accounts. Luke has made it clear for a long time that Jesus and a lot of these teachings have been going toward Jerusalem. This is the momentum we're carrying towards a culmination of sorts in this holy city, And the location of the holy temple is during Passover when tons of Jewish faithful people would be making pilgrimage to this holy city in celebration of this really, really important day. So an equivalent would be, you know, that the size of the city would swell way beyond its normal capacity. If you've ever gone walking around in like Grant Park on a normal spring day and then you go at Lollapalooza, that's kind of like the swell. Like everybody is coming to this one spot. Hustle and bustle. Lots of people. Commerce taking advantage. There's an energy and excitement in this central location to their cultural mindset. And so I want to just pause for a second to talk about the importance of the timing. Location is important. Timing is Passover. Super quick harkens back to Exodus, the time when the people of God, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were slaves in Egypt. And God sends Moses as his prophet to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no, I don't think so. And Moses is like, well, here's a plague. And he's like, I changed my mind, maybe not, go, stay, whatever, like 12 times. And so the last one of these is this really intense moment where uh, God says, you need to let my people go. And if you don't, I am going to send an angel of death over the whole area and tells the Hebrew people through Moses, the only way you and your household will be saved and free is if you take a sacrificial lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb, and you sacrifice it and you put the blood of the slain lamb over your door and the angel will pass by you and instead go to all of the people who are holding you as captives and this angel of death will call, but you will be safe. It will pass over your home because of this spilled blood of the lamb and the people indeed have this happen and God frees the people. The slaves get liberation And they are freed from slavery after this Passover. And so every year, God says, do this thing in remembrance. And so this is a very rich and important part of Jewish culture. Liberation. Freedom from bondage. This is what is deep in their cultural imagination. Now, fast forward thousands of years. And Melissa Pillman, in her young teens, then Melissa Mann, is invited to a Seder dinner. That's the Passover dinner at the friend, my bestie bestie is Jewish, and she invited me to Grandma Dorothy's house. And I know about the Exodus story from my Bible, uh, but I've never experienced a Seder dinner. You guys, it's so beautiful. It's so rich in history, but I'm a dummy. I'm like 13 or something, and I've never been to a Seder dinner. And so when I sit down with my friend Amanda and Grandma Dorothy gives me this plate, and the plate has on it, I, I texted Amanda to remind me. It has a hard-boiled egg, like pickled, to symbolize uh, rebirth. I don't know if you've ever eaten a hard-boiled egg at a social event. It, like, gets lodged, and it's not comfortable, right? It has salt water to represent tears of the slaves. It has parsley, a bitter parsley for spring and rebirth. You dip your parsley in the salt water to show that both... uh, Spring and rebirth and tears can coexist, right? It has more. It has bitter herbs, tastes like horseradish. It has uh, matza, which is really good in soup, but really dry without it. That's an unleavened bread because the slaves didn't have time for the for yeast to for the bread to rise. All of these deeply symbolic. And Grandma Dorothy hands me a plate of like horseradish and herbs and a pickled egg, and I'm like taught you eat what's put in front of you at a dinner party. I think this is the spread of the Seder dinner. So we're going through these prayers. I'm eating parsley. I hate horseradish at this point, but I'm just eating it. I'm trying to choke all this down. And Amanda's just laughing at me because she knows this is not the meal, right? This is the deep symbolism of what's to come. And as we continue to stay at the table for a really long time, out comes the feast. The brisket Melted in my mouth. I had no idea. I was so mad that I forced down that egg. I just, it was so good. The feast to follow, but the deep symbolism was there in everything. And there was so much richness. Seder means order. It's done in the same order every time. Now we do not actually have all of the notes and information about how Seder was practiced at this time, but it has changed a bit. But the symbolism sub—all is there. And indeed this moment, so it's really important that this is happening at the Passover for the faithful people of God. That's what I want us to take away. Because indeed this moment, what we now call the Last Supper, rooted in Passover, has caused Christians so much debate on theory through the years. The good news is, I'm not going to go into this, but in case you like dig theories and deeper theological things, these are important. Things like Well, look at Judas and Peter. Where's predestination versus free will? Look at the elements, the bread and the cup. Where is actual presence versus symbol? These are really important. I'm going to skip over all of them. Just going to let you know, we're not going to any of those places today. But we want to stay on the broad stroke sandwich for what we want to talk about. Because the meat of our sandwich is the Passover meal. As the Bible Project, if you have not checked them out, they articulate things so much better than I can. I highly recommend It's a free resource. The Bible Project talks about this formative meal this way. You regularly participate in praise, thanksgiving, remembrance, and repentance. And through years of practice this cycle of repetition. Do you see that? Cyclical in your entire life of repetition, which is formative. The feasts help the people of Israel into a grateful, believing, and trusting community who shares in God's goodness in life, in these feasts, in these celebrations. And here's what else is important. The feasts, those bitter herbs, that pickled egg, all of it, these feasts are more than a mental reminder. This is talking to our humanity. We taste, we see, we feel, we touch, we smell, and we remember. Our whole body is brought into this. The whole person brought into a reminder of covenant faithfulness of God, where he would gather the people, and then again someday, because here's one of the really beautiful things. This is what happened before. But here's language that all these people knew was a promise of God that would happen again, given through the prophet Isaiah, starting in 25. Someday, they don't say that, but this is a future prophecy. On this mountain, uh, the, the hill of Jerusalem would be considered like this mountain, this, this high point where the people of God is. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, of rich food a feast of well-aged wines of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wine strained clear and he will destroy on this mountain the shred the shroud that is cast over all people the sheet that spread over all nation he will swallow up death forever you guys this is future kingdom promise in feast language so we're sitting here with a feast that remembers God's faithfulness in the past, and we're remembering that this also is an indication of a feast still to come. All this evokes. Memory, cultural memory for a people group that is deeply important. So, note that Jesus in this passage is talking about future kingdom as well, right? He's evoking that same imagery, a reminder of these known uh, promises. See, because Passover wasn't just remembering backwards, that's really important. Don't forget your god freed you remember backwards but it also helps the people to cling to a promise forward that is yet to come the future liberation i have done it i will do it again and so as they look towards jerusalem because they think that's where it's going to happen they've started to see this momentum around this guy jesus who's saying and doing things that evoke this imagery time and time again. So Jesus knows this location and this meal are really important pointers. And here's one of the things that struck me this week. Jesus has looked forward to this meal, he says, together with you. I have earnestly awaited this meal. Jesus made reservations, you guys he prepared the place. And this is Jesus. Jesus isn't making a lot of reservations, right? Someone invites him in, and he's like, sure, I'll come dine with you. And he does stuff that really upsets the host a lot of times. And he shakes things up, but he's just accepting invitations as they come. Sometimes he does an impromptu picnic on a hillside, feeding 5,000 people with zero plans in advance, but only relying on the Spirit of God. He's not one who we see making a lot of pre-reservations. And in a time when making a pre-reservation would have taken a lot of work. But in this moment, he does, right? He says, the, the followers say, like, where should we look? And he's like, I, you know, I've made a plan. Go and find the guy. He'll show you where to go. I've made preparations for this. And so uh, he says, Yeah, go and ask the owner of the house, probably a follower, a believer of Jesus. He'll show you a room upstairs already furnished. I've taken care of this. And so this is a part, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus planned this because location and timing mattered to point to what it was that was coming. He knew this was a tactile reminder and that this people would be easier It would be easier for them to make the links to put together the bigness of what was happening, as N. T. Wright points out. Theories, like we talked about, about like predestination versus free will, all that stuff. Like theories are important, but they're not the main thing that Jesus gave his followers. He gave them an act, a physical, embodied act to perform, a meal to share. It's a meal that speaks more volumes than any theory. I think that's beautiful. It's really important for us to remember. So as a community, the interesting thing is they're currently still at the point of unleavened bread. And again, we don't have details of how Seder or Passover was, but Passover was a long process. You took in a lamb at the beginning and you raised it up in your house. You made sure it had no blemish. You loved it. You took care of it for several days. I actually don't know how long. Don't quote me on that last part. But you took it in for a while during the course and you would be eating your unleavened bread because that represented we don't have time for the bread to rise, right? And then on the day that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, that actually started the evening before. Jewish days start at sunset. So it would be that sunset of Thursday until sunset of Friday would be this day. He's on the Thursday night, and the Passover lambs for the community of Israel would be slain on Friday, the same night that our Savior was slain. It's so, so rich. All of a sudden, to us, this language of a slain lamb means more when we see that as the community was slaying their Passover lamb, Jesus was headed to what we call Good Friday. But I get ahead of myself a little bit. Where was I? Okay. So we're in this moment where we see deep-seated cultural significance for these faithful Jews. The Passover then... Jesus is establishing God's plan right now. It's happening at this table, feasting together through Christ and still to come because we know that Isaiah promised and he's talking about future kingdom. And who is there served this broken body, this poured out cup and served with washed feet? Who's there? Mr. Betrayal and Mr. Denial are at the table for the whole thing. The two sides of the sandwich, Judas will betray, Peter will deny. These two sit at this table in this moment, seeped in cultural significance with squeaky clean washed feet and full tummies served by Jesus, Judas and Peter both. And Jesus knew every, every bit of their failure and he still served them nonetheless. Jesus could have waited. He could have waited until Judas left. He could have corrected Peter and be like, get out of here so you don't deny me. Let's avoid that big mess up. Jesus does none of that. He washes their feet. He serves them the bread and the cup. He lets them both see the significance of what is happening. So uh, Jesus has taken this and said, this is my body. It's representative and he holds this bread. He's still present. He is present holding the bread. And so he's saying, this is it. I'm giving you my body. I am pouring out my blood into sacrificial death he takes the place of the sacrificial lamb. And so that in the next 24 hours, when they're like, what the heck just happened? This isn't the way we thought it would go. They couldn't help but to link the bigger significance to what it is that's happening. The Greek word is he gives thanks is Eucharisto, which is where we get our Eucharist. And we don't need to geek out on language. It's just really a beautiful thing because it's a reminder that he's giving thanks. It's not something we do for Jesus. It's something Jesus has done for us in the Eucharist, and we do this with Jesus. This is participatory language. It's something we participate in every week. There's a spiritual presence and a significance. Uh, The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth says it this way, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Judas and Peter were both a part of the participation in this moment. But the thing I see as I look at it is that Judas went forward and he felt the weight and the guilt and the shame of what he had done. He tried to give the money back and they wouldn't take it. Judas felt all of that and he allowed it to win. He allowed it to win to the point where he took his own life thinking that that body and blood didn't cover him. But he had been served it. He let the guilt and shame win. What did Peter do? Well, Peter felt pretty awful also. We know this because indeed, you know, Peter, he's so impetuous. Oh no, Jesus, I would never do that. I'm like your bestie. I will never deny it. I'll go to the end of the world with you, no problem. And Jesus is like, no, it's really going to happen. Like, you're going to do this. But this is really interesting. Uh, Luke actually tells this in 22. He says the moment where Peter is looking across the courtyard. First of all, Peter does. He indeed denies even knowing Jesus three times. And on the third time, Peter says like, no, I don't know that man. I don't even know what you're talking about. And at that moment, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed, which is what Jesus said before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And the Lord turned. You guys feel this in your gut. Put yourself in the feet of Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, being beaten like across a courtyard. This mangled friend of yours looks and catches your eye. And Peter's stomach sank, I'm sure. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went away and wept bitterly. Don't think for a second that Peter doesn't feel guilt and shame as Judas did too. He feels it. Like, I did that. I said I never would, but I did that. But what does he go on to do? He goes on to become one of the, one of the pivotal voices in the early church, leading the early Christians in the way of Jesus with a humility that he did not bear before this big mess up. But now he bears it, and the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus returns after being uh, crucified and resurrected, and before he ascends, he's like walking on a beach with Peter and asks three times, "Do you love me?" And Peter's like, "You know I do." I'm like, I know I really messed up again. I'm paraphrasing, but I do. I love you. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. We believe that that three time question of "Do you love me?" and reaffirmation of love is to undo in symbolism, not in the the, the the forgiveness happened on the cross, but it symbolically symbolized the three denials being completely washed clean. And what do we have in Peter? We have someone who was riddled in shame and guilt for betraying, for denying his Lord, who now has been reinstated. And the beautiful thing that I just want to say that I saw and was just like in awe of God for, of Christ for in this weak as I sat in this passage. So Jesus washed the feet. He served the bread and cup to both Mr. Denial and Mr. Betrayal, right? They both responded differently to this shame. But as he was saying, Jesus was telling Peter what would happen. What does he say he'll do? He's like, no, no, Peter, this is going to happen. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's not just about being made right. It's about going back into the participation, into a community and strengthen those who also will mess up, who will deny, who will betray, who will trip and stumble. What do you do once you have realized in humility, I messed up, Lord, I did that thing I said I never would do, but you have washed my feet. You have given the, the body and the blood. You've done it all. And as I sit here, I don't dwell in the shame I stand with squeaky clean feet and a full tummy and I now can go and strengthen the others who aren't going to be understanding this stuff either because some days it's hard and some days it's not easy to feel like you can actually accept this full freedom that you've been given. I know it is for me. I also know that one of my things is I'll read this story and I'll try to rank them. I'm going to rank Judas and Peter. Well, who really did the worst thing There's no ranking. Jesus washed both their feet. He did all of it for both of them. But one let the shame win when he was also covered. And one said, I'm sorry. I accept what you've done for me. I see it. And I will now go strengthen the brothers and sisters who are going to try to figure out walking this way of Jesus. And the impetuous Peter who I love all of his big statements in the gospel. He's like one of those, you know when they say, don't use big sweeping statements? You always do that, you never do that. Peter's 100% like, I will always, I would never, and he messes up every time. Like, I love that about Peter, he's so impetuous. But in Acts, he's not. In the book of Acts, we have a humble leader that people look to, to see the way of Jesus. He's allowed this moment of mess up, to mark him in humility, and to serve the church in participation to strengthen those who are also trying to follow in the way of Jesus. And so what I want to leave for us today is first of all, a freedom from shame. Just that's it. I want to speak it over you. There's a freedom from shame. Jesus has already done all of the work. There's also no room for us to play the ones who rank. No ranking. I say that to me. There's no, that one was too much. That was over and above. No There's no ranking in the fellowship of believers. And there is a room for the participation that says, and now in my humility, because I've messed up, how can I be here to strengthen you? And you for me. Because we are doing this thing together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to leave you to think about that. And I'm going to just say, however you all enjoy to respond, I'm going to read a passage and I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to trust that what happens next is going to happen after I walk away. But remembering that this moment, remember this is, yes, a deep cultural remembrance backwards. A new thing happening now through Christ. This is where we dwell in the participation strengthening still. And a promise of future that is as sure as the liberation in our past because our God is a covenant God. That is sure. And so I'm going to read you a passage about our lamb in the future from uh, the book of Revelation, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to go on and respond to the word of the Lord. In Revelation 5, 6, uh, John, who sees this vision, says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Imagery, remember, standing at the center of the throne. He goes on to say, This lamb went. He took the scroll that no one else was worthy to read from, except a slain lamb. All that imagery, right? Everybody fell down and they had bowls of incense and songs and they start praying the prayers of God's people and they sang a new song saying, You, slain lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from Every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's participation language that we've been invited to share into now. So we lean into the presence, the present time, as we strengthen one another in the Lord in our waiting, and we just speak to each other radical grace, restoration already brought through Christ for all who turn towards and say, I will not let the shame win. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Peter, who could still mess up, but be restored and know that I then can have a purpose to restore those around me who are trying to continue to turn and walk into this never-ending love of Christ Jesus.